0: This is the fourth time that we've come together in this way and as there are so many of you that weren't here the first evening I thought it would be a good idea to reintroduce the meditation practice and reintroduce myself. The practice of insight meditation or Vipassana meditation comes out of the southern school of Buddhism the Theravadin School of Burma, and Thailand, and Sri Lanka. And the practice of mindfulness or awareness that we did here this evening together, although it comes out of this tradition, it's really a practice that is common to all of the different Buddhist traditions. And my teachers were women and men who practiced in Asia, in the 60s and 70s, and came over to the West and began in the mid-70s, sharing the teachings from this particular tradition. And in the fall, many of these people are going to be in the area and it's very possible that they will be joining us and uh, they then will be leading the meditation and uh, doing the talks our intention in coming together is really to both give you a full understanding of the meditation practice, both in the instructions and in the talks, and also to give you a rounded and balanced understanding of the tradition out of which these meditations um, come. The meditations of uh, awareness, and the forgiveness that we did last week, and the loving-kindness meditation. And I really welcome any feedback that you may have and any requests that you might like for me to cover or other teachers to cover uh, in these evenings when we get together. The talk this evening actually is one that um, was requested. And one of the central parts of this teaching that is very important for me to emphasize is the role of the teacher In this tradition, the the role of the teacher is really one of guide, of co inquirer The teacher standing with everyone else, looking together at the experience. I see my role as teacher as being one of empowering people to take the full responsibility that is required on this path of awareness and this path of understanding. No allegiance is asked for. No authority is asked for. And it's an issue that is very difficult for many of us. And it's one that in this tradition, particularly in the West, it's an issue that has been given a lot of care and a lot of thought. In teaching, I myself am supported by my teachers actively as they encourage me to do this work and they themselves are also supported by their teachings, their teachers and that is the way that it happens in this particular tradition and so we come here together and we sit in the circle as we're doing supporting one another in silence to beautify our hearts and minds and come to know the understanding that is possible. And in the sharing now and in the sharing afterwards when there's an opportunity for dialogue, this is really a very precious opportunity for us to listen and hear one another and receive teachings. Because really we are all one another's teachers. We have so much to learn from each other. Just before the Buddha died, Ananda, who was his chief disciple, came to him and said, what are we gonna do? He said, you know, you're about to go, you're very sick, what are we gonna do? He'd been teaching for 40 years and there were these thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of nuns and monks who'd lived very closely with him. And he said, the most important thing for you is to be a light unto yourself. He said, take refuge in yourself. He said, take refuge in nothing else other than what is true. He said, let the truth or the dharma be your refuge. And that really is the spirit in which the teachings are given here in this group. And in the tradition, from which I have received so much. And one of the most compelling and inspiring aspects of the practice that we're doing here together is for me the utter simplicity of it. In the willingness to be present with each moment, there is so much that is possible. So much understanding. And the one other factor that is really important in this unfolding, apart from the mindfulness and the awareness, is what is classically called virtue. Or morality. With an established virtue or morality and the power of mindfulness on the other hand, the deepest truths are possible in our lives. And what I'd like to do this evening is talk about virtual morality. And these are words, these are classical words that perhaps for you too, certainly for me, are a little difficult to hear. And a word that is much easier for many of us is perhaps non-harming. This evening I'd like to speak about non-harming. A very important part of the meditation practice, this way of deepening our understanding of ourselves and of the world in which we live. As householders, the Buddha said, it is the central practice. The central practice is how it is we relate to ourselves and how we relate in the world. For me, Mahatma Gandhi, his life exemplified this quality of non harming, ahimsa, that's called, this quality of ahimsa. And I'm going to be quoting him tonight quite a bit. He said, to come to the heart of truth one must be able to love the meanest creature as oneself. And those who think that religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion really means. Loving the meanest creature as oneself. The Buddha too emphasized Non harming. It's really the golden thread through the teachings of the Buddha. He said sandalwood and tagara are delicately scented and give little fragrance, but the fragrance of virtue and a mind well trained rises even to the gods. we relate to one another. We look outside of ourselves at the world in which we live, and the magnitude of the suffering is incredible. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in Africa, Central and South America, Middle East, Asia, are in so much pain, there's so much hunger, there's so much conflict, there is so much. Each year, Amnesty International brings out 50, 60, 70 nation lists of countries that systematically practice torture on their own people incredible. And no sooner is war and conflict in one part of the country over than it flares up in another. It's incredible to think that at this very moment there are hundreds and thousands of women and men facing one another in fear and anger across an arid desert on the other side of the world, so far from home from their wives and husbands and children. And none of them know one another. Why? Why is this happening? How can it be that almost exactly 45 years ago the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima? It certainly seems as though we need a world with far more heart than there is. Changing governments and changing economic systems can help to a degree but it would seem as though something far more fundamental is called for. A world with less prejudice and less hatred and so much more mercy and compassion and generosity and selflessness. And if we look inwardly in our practice at times We come to see those self-same qualities that cause problems in our world at home in our own hearts and minds Together, of course, with our capacity for loving and caring and tenderness also For it is true that there is so much division and separation both inwardly and outwardly. And where there is division and separation, there is conflict and there is pain. Where there is separation, there is a very strong sense of me and mine and my country and my rights and my resources. And my needs, really to the exclusion of the truth that what is true is that we are all fundamentally interconnected with one another. And when we separate and divide, there is pain. And yet it's everywhere Republicans and Democrats, gays and straights blacks and whites. All an extension of this idea that we are separate. And as householders, the question of how it is in the world, how it is for us, how we live our lives and how we relate to one another, is so important on this path of awakening, this path of insight and understanding. The way the Buddha taught non-harming was in giving to his followers what have become known as the training precepts. And it's very important for me to explain to you the context and the way in which he presented these teachings. They were not given as absolutes. They were not given as commandments of do this and don't do this and this is wrong and this is right. Rather, he said, there are five things to consider in your life. He said, there are five things to experiment with. Look and see what is true for you in your consideration. And then the challenge is to live that truth moment-to-moment. For me, the training precepts are one of the most inspiring parts of the whole teaching. For each moment, each moment's challenge is to look at these questions, find the truth, and live that truth. And at the beginning, I thought it was kind of a sort of a wishy-washy teaching, you know, it can be this and it can be that. But really, it's not that at all. Just imagine, as we develop deeper and deeper levels of sensitivity, we consider the precepts, and they need to change. They need to grow. They need to evolve. And so the precepts are really something that are alive moment to moment in our lives. It's so beautiful. The first precept is the precept of non-harming really the fundamental one. I'd like to look at these in the spirit of co-inquirer, and as I talk, please use this as an opportunity to investigate these precepts in your own lives. Non-harming on its grossest sense, of course, means not going around killing one another. That probably wouldn't be a good idea. But really, it goes a lot further than that. We certainly live in a world that is very arrogant and so much undervalues the life of beings other than our own species. Just to walk down the supermarket, down that particular aisle where all the aerosols are and the roach metals, is just such a terrifying reminder of how arrogant we can sometimes be in terms of how we relate to the creatures around us. And again, what I'm not saying is that this is right or this is wrong, but what I'm suggesting is that we really need to look at these questions very carefully in our lives. How does it feel in that moment when we kill a mosquito and kill another mosquito? There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of anger there. It doesn't feel so great. There was this wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker magazine a couple of years ago during hunting season. And this one deer is like looking at the other deer and says, why don't, they, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like living this interconnection is really the heart of this particular precept and it's sometimes so difficult to do. I was up um, here at a lake on top of the mountain behind Putney a couple of weeks ago and I was having a picnic and all of a sudden this like great big orange cloud came towards me in the water and it came closer and closer and when it got to me it was like this huge school of goldfish. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is so beautiful and I and I was sitting there, and they were like all around me. And um, about half an hour later, the woman came down from the house, and we were chatting and everything. And I said, "Gosh, you know, it was so beautiful." And I was sort of spaced out about this. And she said, "A couple of years before, somebody had come down and dumped a couple of goldfish in their dam, and these things had multiplied to such an extent that because these particular fish feed on the bottom of the lake." They were bringing to the surface so much bacteria and poison that the whole lake was really now poisoned and they had to drain it. But the Department of Agriculture had come and said that in draining this lake, they were going to supervise it to make sure that not one of these fish got through because they could do the same thing further down. So every one of what looked like to be hundreds of thousands of fish were going to die because of somebody's real carelessness and ignorance. It was just an amazing realization for me of how careful we have to be. There's been so much violence to our planet and so much care seems to be necessary One of the other issues that always comes up when talking about non-harming and killing is this very delicate question of vegetarians, you know, and what does one eat? You know, does one eat meat and what meat does one eat? And the Buddha said to his monks, he said, it's important that whatever is given to you, you receive with gratitude. But he said, if you know that an animal has been killed specifically for your consumption. He said, that is meat that you don't eat. But he said, other than that, eat what you're given. And it's also said that he himself actually died of pork poisoning. So it's a very individual question. We have to find our own truth within and live that truth. In the early years of my practice in South Africa um, I was like a real zealot on on, on this particular one and I was in this restaurant with my mother and father and brother and my brother's partner and um, they all ordered crayfish which in South Africa like these huge like monstrous things and they came to the table and they were like tentacles and claws and everything (laughs) And, and they were like all over. And I had this very petite little bowl of cannelloni, like cheese cannelloni, you know. And I was like sitting there and my mother was snapping and cracking and they were sucking these things and I was like absolutely distraught, you know. And my brother's partner like leaned over to me and said, "Um, just step outside for a minute, please. And so I stepped outside with her and she was really strong. She said, she said, you are such a sanctimonious vegetarian. She said, you are spoiling this meal for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was like, and she was so true. She was like, absolutely true. And I was like, you know, I went back in and sat down and, you know, I just like let it go. And I, I was able to really enjoy it with them. I mean, I was causing so much harm at that table, you know, in my harmlessness. It was it was really great. <laughs> We need to be so careful, it seems, with how we work with these precepts. And each of these precepts has a restraining quality and an active quality. And so on this particular precept, the restraint is being careful and taking care. And the active one is, how are we in the world? What is it that we do in this world? Does what we do create separation or division? Or is it a way of generating connection and love and (coughs) compassion? (coughs) And for some of us it may mean that we become politically active. And then the question is how is the spirit in our hearts and minds? When we do our work, do we go into that particular area with anger And with division and with separation or do we go into our political work in the spirit of connection? Gandhi said, I cultivate in my soldiers the courage of dying without killing. I believe that non-violence is infinitely superior to violence. Forgiveness more manly than punishment, dignity more precious than indignation and silent defiance more powerful than blustering force. And so this particular training precept may manifest actively in our lives in that way. And of course there are so many ways. The spirit in which a mother brings up her children in a home, that is respectful and that nurtures non-violence and connection would seem to be as important as any other work that we have to do in the suffering world of ours. The next precept is the precept of stealing. Not taking anything that is not given considering this precept in our lives. I mentioned before that I had the privilege of ordaining as a monk several years ago, and there were 227 of these precepts that we had to live by in the monkhood. But really one of the most fundamental precepts was that we were not allowed to either receive we, we were not allowed to take anything that hadn't been offered to us, and we weren't allowed to ask for anything. And that was such a change for me. I mean, imagine living off what is offered. Totally. It was such a great opportunity to see how we relate to what it is that we feel we need in the world. I was able to live with so much less than I ever imagined possible. And all of us at some point or other, I think I can safely say, have taken something that hasn't been offered or something that isn't ours. And that feeling that it leaves in the heart, you know, the fear, the paranoia, the complexity, is so painful. And it's really true that in working with these training precepts we come to know the laws of happiness, really. We become to know the laws of that way of being in the world that make us happy. And what a wonderful gift that is to ourselves, living in a way that brings happiness, both inwardly and outwardly. We live in a planet of five billion people and we're told again and again that there's enough for all of us and yet there are so many people in the world who are starving children who are dying because there's no food and so the question On this particular preset would seem to be, do we live beyond our needs? What are the ethics of sharing in our lives? The call seems to be to consider ever-increasing levels of simplicity. And this has nothing to do with guilt. Nothing to do with that at all. We are guardians and custodians of this planet for our children. And we need to live in a way that is so careful and so respectful of the privilege that we have. And the Buddha said this again and again. Living with care and walking lightly on the face of the earth. element of restraint in considering not stealing. It's the active part of this particular precept. It has to do with what the Buddha called generosity. The first teaching he established people in, before they started sitting, he required that the nuns and monks in his order establish themselves in generosity. He said, If beings knew as I knew the ripening of sharing of gifts, they would not enjoy the use of gifts without sharing them, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and their remain. Even if it were their last possession, their last morsel of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it. We certainly live in a world where the issue of generosity and money is so complicated. Money is so valued and used as such a weapon against one another, rich against poor, north against south. And coming to a skillful relationship with this question of generosity is really as important as any other part of our practice. In the teachings, it's emphasized again and again. The Buddha said there are three kinds of generosity. He said the first three kinds of giving. The first is beggarly giving where you sort of have something, you know, and you think, well I really don't need this, you know. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fine, you take it, you know. And that's beggarly giving. And he said, you know, that's very important. He said, we all have to start somewhere. And he said, we all have to start at that point where we're not harming ourselves. There's no point in burning ourselves out on this particular issue. We have to start somewhere. (coughs) And the next is called friendly giving where you have something that you want and it's some sacrifice and you give it to your family or your friends or people that you love at some sacrifice, that's called friendly giving, really beautiful developing the spirit of, of giving and generosity in our hearts and then finally there's queenly giving or kingly giving where we live generously where we live with a really deeply developed sense of generosity in our life, with a deep sense of selflessness and selfishlessness. And I must emphasize again that I'm not in any way suggesting guilt here. What I'm suggesting is that this is yet another question to consider Some people have heard this and they thought, oh no, God, I've got to give away everything. And they start like giving everything away and they burn out, you know, and they get all strung out on this. And that's no good. That's like harming themselves. And so dealing with this one with the same sensitivity and tenderness and gentleness as every other aspect of the teaching is really important. So there was harming, non-harming, and then stealing, or not taking that which isn't given. And the third one is this very important question of speech. Our speech is so powerful. It's really the primary way in which we communicate with one another. It has such impact. The Buddha emphasized speech so much. This is Gandhi again. He said, My hesitancy in speech, which was once an annoyance, is now a pleasure. Its greatest benefit has been that it taught me the economy of words. I have naturally formed the habit of restraining my thoughts, and I can now give myself the certificate that not a thoughtless word hardly ever escapes my tongue or pen. That's incredible. I do not recollect ever having had to regret anything in my speech or my writing. I have thus been spared many a mishap and a waste of time. Experience has taught me that silence is part of the spiritual discipline of the votary of truth. Proneness to exaggerate, to suppress or modify the truth, wittingly or unwittingly, is a natural weakness of man, and silence is necessary in order to surmount it. A man of few words will rarely be thoughtless in his speech. He or she will measure every word that leaves his or her mouth. And it's really difficult. Mindfulness of speaking is so difficult. Now on retreat, or in monasteries such as the one I was, we talked very little, and it was really an opportunity to come to know the truth, that really words are not as necessary as we think they are, that we can communicate and relate to one another in silence, in ways that sometimes are far more honest than our words are. And as our sensitivity deepens, we rarely come to feel the effects of the slightest exaggeration, the slightest manipulation of the truth. And that sensitivity becomes our protection. It keeps us honest because that pain is so difficult. The restraining part of speech. What is the more active side of this particular training precept? Well, it would seem to me that it simply has to do with using speech that is considered, that is not divisive, that is loving, that is tender. And of course, in this precept too, we each have to consider this question of how it is that we use words and come to know and then live our truth it's such a responsibility in Buddhism there's so many lists (laughs) some people love the lists and some people hate the lists (laughs) I, I I had more of a sort of a hate relationship with lists, and still I started teaching, and then <laughs> <laughs> I realized sometimes you just can't get away from them, you know. Everything's already organized for you. That's right. I mean, it's as simple as <laughs> that. So, this is number four, <laughs> and this is really the biggie: how it is we love our sexuality in the world. So, the first one was non-harming, and then stealing, and then our speech, and the fourth one is how we live our sexuality, our sexual energy in the world. And as nuns and monks or when we are on retreat, it's somewhat less complicated because in those situations, celibacy is really the the requirement. And so It's then an opportunity for us to come to know our sexual energy in the silence and in the support of others and come to see it and work with that energy and come to know it better. But as householders, the challenge is different. How is it that we express our sexuality in the world? What would this particular training preset mean in your hearts and minds. It would certainly seem as though in loving our sexuality the question of non-harming is so important. Is there any part of the way in which our sexuality manifests in the world that is harmful either to ourselves or to those around us. And the difficult questions are, of course, the issues of pornography, the issues of adultery, the issues of deceit in our sexuality, the questions of, a, of um, children. And really, who hasn't been an idiot about sexuality. <laughs> Is there anybody that dare speak? <laughs> and really, who hasn't been hurt? Who hasn't been hurt? Personally, it was a wonderful privilege not having to live my sexuality for a period of time when I was in the monkhood. Just really giving me the breathing space in which to come to know that way in which I had up until that point been unskillful and uncaring and harmful both inwardly and outwardly. The restraining part of this precept and the active part, again, would seem to be living our sexuality in a way that was respectful, that generates tenderness and compassion and communion and caring for one another. The last of the precepts is the question of intoxicants and drugs. Awareness and presence and mindfulness are such rare and such precious gifts in a world where there is so little of this particular power of mind. It would seem to be so important that the use of anything that could disturb this particular power of mind, needs to be considered really carefully. And again, I'm not for one moment suggesting that an odd glass of wine is a bad idea, but I think here, as with all the other precepts, we need to consider our use of these substances. And possibly to the extent that we use them in a way that is harmful, either to ourselves or to others. That is perhaps unskillful. We seem to know so much about the effects of alcohol. Not only on the user, but on all the people in the user's world. And it would seem that one needs to consider this particular precept no more carefully and sensitively as any other. So these are the five precepts, non-harming, stealing, speech, sexuality, and intoxicants and drugs. The Buddha said that really if we're deeply established in mindfulness and attention and awareness, that the precepts really are not necessary. They're just training, he said. Because if we were totally mindful and totally aware, there is really no way that we could live with harmfulness and with division. I'm going to end with a reading out of Carlos Castaneda's book. This is a teaching that Don Juan gave to, to Carlos. He said, the, heart, the art of the hunter is to become inaccessible. To be inaccessible means that you touch the world around you sparingly. You don't eat five quail, you eat one. You don't damage the plants just to make a barbecue pit. You don't expose yourself to the power of the wind, unless it is mandatory. You don't use and squeeze people until they have shriveled to nothing. To be inaccessible does not mean to hide or to be secretive. It does not mean that you cannot deal with people either. A hunter uses his or her world sparingly and with tenderness, regardless of whether the world might be things or plants or animals, or people, or power. A hunter deals intimately with his or her world, and yet is inaccessible to that same world. The hunter is inaccessible because she or he is not squeezing the world out of shape. She taps the world lightly, stays for as long as she needs, and then swiftly moves away, hardly leaving a mark. Let me sit together for a moment, please. life of awareness, life of meditation, is a powerful path of purification. And this purification happens on so many different levels. The last time we were here two weeks ago, we looked at this question of community and explored the level of healing where we come to know that we are not divided or separated from one another on any level. We spoke of the healing that happens, where we, we heal into that great web of interconnection, out of which none of us can ever fall. Healing from separation and division, a very important level in path of meditation, this path of purification. (coughs) The Buddha again and again said he was concerned with only one thing and that was suffering and the end of suffering. And the meditation practice that we've done this evening It's always important for me to to reflect on the fact that this this simple practice is one that can take us to complete liberation from suffering. The power and strength of mind to be present is quite simply the only tool that we need to liberate ourselves from what it is that is painful. Another purification, another level of this purification is the purification of the factors of mind, factors of the heart. And what I'd like to do this evening, to begin with, is briefly share with you one of the central teachings of the Buddha, the seven factors of enlightenment, for me personally one of the most inspiring teachings. The first factor of enlightenment is the factor of mindfulness. It's that factor of mind that enables us to be more and more present with our experience. It's the compost out of which the other six factors begin to mature and blossom and develop. It's been called in the scriptures, the warp on the loom against which all the other six factors are then woven. The factor of mindfulness very important. The factor of investigation is the factor of mind of questioning. What is it that is happening? What is the truth of this moment? Who am I? factor of enlightenment, of investigation. The next is energy. The energy to be present. As you all know, it does take a certain amount of energy to recommit oneself again and again, to be present with what it is that is happening, however difficult or wonderful our experience might be. And perhaps you can even see with these two factors of enlightenment how the energy can balance and generate investigation and how our investigation can affect the energy. These are the rousing factors of mind energy, investigation, and the third is rapture. Rapture is a quality of mind that arises spontaneously, it's a joy of being present in the moment. It too is an energizing factor of mind. Mindfulness, and then energy, rapture, and investigation. And then there are three tranquilizing factors of mind. The first of these is calm. another strength of mind, to be calmly present with our experience. This evening I'm going to mostly be sharing with you some of my favorite poetry. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda. He says, now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas and wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity, Life is what it is all about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. The factor of enlightenment of calm. The second of the tranquilizing factors of mind is the factor of concentration, It is that power and strength of mind that enables us to be with a single object for however long it is that we need to be there. There are two kinds of concentrations. There is momentary concentration, which you already have a sense of. It is that power of concentration that enables us to be just with the sound, just with the sensation in the body, just with the sensations of breathing, whatever it is, being there. The other kind of concentration is one where our mind and attention is with a single object. It might just be with a sound for a period of time, or with a mantra, or with a visualization, or with loving-kindness. A very important factor of mind enables us to be present and less discursive and less fragmented in our attention. So, these tranquilizing factors of mind there's calm, there's concentration, and then there's equanimity. In the scriptures, they speak of the factors of enlightenment being like a tree. The compost of the tree is the mindfulness supporting and encouraging the development of these very important factors of mind the blossoming of the tree and the ripening of the fruit the maturing of these factors of enlightenment and this final factor of enlightenment of equanimity is like the final ripening of the apple and its falling from the tree It is always the last factor of enlightenment to develop. It is that power of mind that enables us to be present with whatever our experience is, no matter how difficult or how exhilarating it might be. It's like the Sun shining down on our planet which doesn't discriminate upon which it falls. Seven Factors of Enlightenment developing both in our meditation practice and in our lives and potentially deeply, deeply free. And in the meditation we can begin to develop an intuitive sense of which of these factors is out of balance and just that question can enable us intuitively to perhaps lift the energy a little or balance the energy with calm or perhaps a little more investigation and they all come into balance it's so empowering we begin to develop a deep sense of inner trust and inner guide and we look far less outside of ourselves for the answers or in blame. It is so true that we can deeply begin to enjoy this process of awakening. What I'd like to do this evening is speak about joy both in our practice and in our lives outside. It is said that joy is the gateway to Nirvana. Joy is the gateway to freedom. And I ask you to reflect for a moment on this question of joy in your life and in the meditation practice. And I ask this question in the spirit of a co-inquirer where we together this evening are going to look into this very important question of joy in our lives that it is true for me to say that we come to the meditation practice so often out of a sense of dis-ease in our lives, a sense of things not being quite as fulfilling and meaningful as they might be. Sometimes the suffering is gross and sometimes the suffering is subtle. But the meditation practice is not easy and there has to be some reason why we're all here. For me, in the early years of my practice, it seemed as though the suffering got so much worse at the beginning. I remember asking my teacher at the time, Joseph Goldstein, although many of you know him, And he he said to me, he assured me that there was a break-even point with the suffering. And I now understand so much what he meant. It seems that as we begin to inquire into our experience more and more deeply, it is not that we suffer more than we did before, but we begin to see so much more the levels of resistance and denial that that are there, that we're always there. It's like getting the truth into the open. And it can be so difficult, and it can be so painful. And as we deepen, we must and do come to edges and thresholds at which we've not been before. And in each of those thresholds, at each of those edges, there must be fear. often is anger. And the question I ask you tonight is with that fear, with those very difficult emotions, can there be also a sense of joy? And if I may please, I'd like to take this a little further. This path of purification, this process of deepening our understanding of our hearts and minds, is like an onion that we're peeling. And as the layers fall away, we can reach levels that can be profoundly painful. We can come to understanding and to realizations of ways in which we were wounded and we were hurt. And this can bring with us, with it, reservoirs of rage and anger and deep sense of betrayal that we had no idea were there before. It is almost as though the curtains go up the curtains of denial, and behind that, so many dreams can be shattered. So many ideas of the lives that we had lived can be in pieces around us. And with that can come terror and rage and anger for which it seems we could never be equipped to deal with. It's so difficult, these storms of the mind, And I ask you that question again. Can we with this still have a sense of joy in our lives and in the meditation practice? For me this is such an important question. I'd like to read a quote that I read last week, uh, two weeks ago out of the Sufi tradition. They say, overcome any bitterness which may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and each one of us endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain you were sharing in the totality of that pain and are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. To meet it in joy instead of self-pity. When Martin Luther King was in Chicago in the late sixties there was a point in all that madness, all that rioting there where he was standing in this field and this chaos was erupting around him and he was being sheltered by many of his close associates Jesse Jackson and Andrew Young were there and a reporter reached into the circle where King was being sheltered and asked him, are you happy that you've come here? What do you think of what's going on around you? And King said, this is cause for great celebration. He said, we are getting today the truth out into the open. And for this we must be grateful. Getting the truth out into the open. I grew up in South Africa. And as my country slowly makes its first faltering steps towards some sort of accommodation, some sort of place of peace and justice, there are these terrifying spectres now of men and women and children too, marching down the streets of the cities in khaki uniforms, with red armbands with swastikas on and great big flags, speaking of a racism and an extremism that is so terrifying. And yet it does seem to me so true that this is cause for some celebration, because at last we are getting down to the cancer that has been there all along, which was hidden to some extent, which is now coming into the open, and which brings with it now the possibility of healing there. I believe as we shed this light of awareness within, into the shadows and into the darknesses of our hearts and minds, that there is a possibility for there to be joy. For as deep as our healing goes, as deep too, or as deep as our inquiry or our pain goes, as deep can our healing be. Perhaps you can get a sense of what I'm speaking, of what I'm speaking. If there's fear, say, the difference between saying, oh no, here's that fear again, oh God, however am I going to deal with this, as opposed to that quality of mind that says, "Wow." Look at this one. And sort of opening your heart and mind and saying, Let me die of this fear. (laughs) It's a very, very different way of receiving our experience. And I'm not for one moment suggesting some sort of Pollyanna relationship with what it is that is so difficult. What I am suggesting now is that there is cause for joy, that there is cause for celebration when we go deep and we find these very difficult emotions that begin to surface in our lives. A mind that can receive experience that way is a mind that is powerful, a mind that is strong, a mind that is bright, and a mind that is so light. The Tibetans have a practice called the 7 limbed Practice. And they say cultivate undeclining joy and happiness in developing the mind of awakening. Undeclining joy and happiness in developing the mind of awakening. And this is so true both in our meditation practice and in our lives. In the classical scriptures of the Buddhist tradition there are five categories of joy and rapture. I'd like to share these with you. I find them very inspiring and quite sweet. The first joy that we come to in the meditation practice is called minor joy. And minor joy is like goosebumps on your skin or chills in your body or your hair standing on end. Minor joy The next is momentary joy, sort of flashes of joy, jolts of joy. And these arise spontaneously in the meditation practice as our minds align themselves more and more with what is true. And then there is showering joy, like the waves coming up on the beach. It's almost as if parts of the body suddenly are bright and light. It's so wonderful. It's kind of like the northern lights. And then there's uplifting joy, where the body feels very light, and I'm told that sometimes the body can even leave the ground. I don't know about that. And then there is pervading joy where the whole body, the heart and mind is suffused with joy the joy of being present honestly with each moment's experience. The factor of enlightenment of rapture is likened in the scriptures to traveling through a hot desert and finally coming to a shady lake which is filled with cool, clear water. How do we cultivate joy? Such an important question. Bartholomew, who is a channel teacher, says, You know what makes you sing, what makes you dance and laugh and love. But if you do not ask yourself what it is you know, you will go on listening to others, and change will not come because because you will not hear your own truth. You know what makes you sing and love, and dance. One of the ways of cultivating joy in the classic tradition is reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha or the qualities of the awakened mind. the ten perfections like to just briefly go through these they're wonderful the first perfection is the perfection of generosity giving motivated by wanting to help all beings helping to alleviate the suffering of all beings the perfection of generosity The second is the perfection of morality, of non-harming all beings. <coughs> the third is the perfection of renunciation, the perfection of developing a mind that is in harmony with the truth that everything is changing, and that to hold onto anything can only create suffering in our lives. Taking refuge in simplicity. The fourth is the perfection of energy. One of the factors of enlightenment also, of which we've spoken. And the fifth is wisdom. The perfection of wisdom. Taking refuge in those truths that we come to know <coughs> in our meditation practice and in our lives. Those truths. The sixth is the perfection of patience. So difficult and so important. Saint Francis de Sales says, be patient with everyone but above all with yourself. I mean do not be disheartened by your imperfections, but always rise up with fresh courage. I am glad you make a fresh beginning daily. There is no better means of attainment to the spiritual life than by continually beginning again and never thinking that we have done enough. How are we to be patient in dealing with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? He or she who is fretted by his own failings will not correct them. All profitable correction comes from a calm and peaceful mind. The perfection of patience. The next perfection is that of loving-kindness, inwardly and outwardly. And then honesty, the perfection of total honesty within and in our lives. And the ninth is the perfection of resolution, or faith. Spirit of commitment to exploring and coming to know what is true for each of us in each moment. And the last one is equanimity, the perfection of equanimity, of which we've already spoken. This is one of the ways to cultivate joy. reflecting on the perfections of the awakened mind. Perhaps another way might be to reflect on this gathering of all of us here together this evening, supporting one another, beautifying our hearts together in silence, taking refuge in one another, is such a joyful thing to do. Another way of cultivating joy is by direct active inquiry. Asking the question in each moment, where is the joy? In my own practice, and more recently more so, This has been a very engaging and a very exhilarating question. Where is the joy? Moment to moment. And as I've said before, this is not a Pollyanna question, where I expect that each moment has to be filled with emotions that are pleasurable and and sensations that are easy. For me this question, again and again, is like a knife that cuts through those moments when I'm acting out of guilt. When I'm acting on those voices that tell me what I should be doing, (coughs) rather than acting out of the deepest understanding of my heart. It is like a knife that cuts through those moments when I'm out of alignment with my highest purpose. Where is the joy? For me also, it has been an inquiry that has helped me see those ways in which I have had an unskillful relationship with the really difficult emotions that we come to know in the meditation practice. How the fears that seem so often to have been there for so long, I've on some levels entered into a sort of unholy alliance with them. How it's almost as though the fears are more my friends than the possibility of being free of them. Developing an awareness that is bright and childlike and true. Just being with the experience of the wind on your cheek or the sounds of the birds. These can and you know are moments of great ecstasy and joy. Where is the joy? Taking refuge in nature, another way of cultivating joy, opening the energies of one's heart and mind and body to this beautiful world around us can be one of the ways when times are difficult that we can also know joy and brightness in our hearts. There are so many ways. There's a poem that I really love that I'd like to share with you that always makes me so happy. It's written by an 85-year-old woman. I think some of you know this. Her name was Nadine Stair. She wrote this shortly before dying. She said, if I had my life over, I'd make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains. I would swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. (laughs) (laughs) I would have perhaps more actual troubles, but I would have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I have been one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour and day after day. Oh, I've had my moments and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try and have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. (laughs) If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have done. If I had to live my life over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring, and I would stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances, I would ride more merry-go-rounds, I would pick more daisies. Another way of developing joy in the meditation practice is by actively using the practice of loving-kindness meditation which is a practice where you actively generate inwardly and outwardly (coughs) the qualities of non-harming, generating love and acceptance inwardly and towards all beings. And it is the way of the mind that when you seclude it in this way, when you cultivate loving-kindness when you cultivate equanimity using concentration we seclude the mind from fear we seclude the mind from anger and in that way we can develop a foundation of joy and of loving-kindness that is there to serve us when the times are very difficult It is said in the scriptures that when the Buddha first began teaching people meditation He first taught them the loving-kindness meditation. He had them practice generosity and morality in their lives. And when these factors were strong, he then moved on to the full exploration of life in all its different dimensions. Loving-kindness meditation is regarded as the antidote to fear. It is so important. And perhaps one of the next times that we come together we can explore this question of (coughs) loving-kindness and do the loving-kindness practice together. There's a wonderful Indian teacher, his name is Munindraji, and he said to some of us one day, he said, he was leaving and he'd been so bright and so inspiring to us and we were really sad to see him go And he said the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma the truth protects those who protect the truth and for me this is personally a very very joyful reflection and it's so simple the Dharma Protects those who protect the Dharma. Thet Nhat Hanh, this is a wonderful Vietnamese monk. Some of you may know him. His meditation instruction is really brief. He says, breathe and smile. And that's it. And perhaps for a moment if you could just let your eyes close and just get a sense of that. Just sitting, breathing, and smiling. And as you breathe and smile, know that there is another meditation practice in the Taoist tradition that is called smiling into the body. So I ask you to also smile into your bodies. Smile into your heart and mind. Smile into all your organs. Smiling into every pore, every cell. Breathing and smiling. Tetnad Han breathes and smiles from a place of having witnessed some of the most gory and terrible suffering in our world. Hmm. I recently did a, a 10 day retreat and it was a really difficult one for me and I was out doing walking meditation and I was having we spoke last time of these multiple hindrance attacks and I was having a really difficult time my mind was crazy and next to me a friend of mine was doing walking meditation And she had this great big smile on her face, and she was walking up and down next to me with a smile on her face. And at first I felt really irritated by this. (laughs) And my mind immediately said, well, she clearly isn't as deep as I am (laughs) here. She was like going up and down with this radiance next to me there. And after about 10 minutes I thought, okay, you know, I'll give it a shot. So I started sort of smiling and about half an hour later both of us were going up and down Russell knows where I was it was on the tennis courts over there up and down on the tennis courts the two of us were were going smiling away and I left a day earlier and I wrote her this note and I said to her you know how happy I was that she had the chance to sit for a while and it was wonderful that she was there and that I really hope that we saw each other soon and I left without speaking to her and a couple of days later I got a postcard from her and she said oh it was so great that you had a chance to sit she said that was the hardest retreat I've ever done
1: (laughs) it was such
0: a teaching for me (laughs) so I guess the question is in the midst of the inevitable sorrows of life, can we awake together to the possibility of us also knowing the joys in those moments that can be so difficult? Can we awaken to a joy that can be also present in those times that are difficult. E.E. E. Cummings, he says, I thank you God for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything, everything which is natural, Everything which is infinite Which is yes I who have died am alive again today and This is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and of swings And of the gay great happening illimitably earth now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. Thank you. May you sit together for a moment, please.